Good morning. For the record, uh, Joshua, who's on the children's message, we will always let your mother bring you lunch from work. You do not have to buy. <clears throat> In the uh, first centuries of the early church, the followers of Jesus uh, went through a rough time. And by that, I do not mean that the barista at Starbucks said Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. I mean they were persecuted. They were mistreated. They were tortured. Some of them were put to death. In 256 AD, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, wrote a treatise entitled On the Good of Patience. His purpose was to encourage the church as they dealt with persecution from the Roman Empire, internal conflicts that were going on in the church at that time, and the impact of a pandemic that ravaged the Roman Empire in the, uh, during this time. They were right in the middle of it. That, uh, that pandemic killed an estimated, depending on who you talk to, between 5 and 10 million people. To these people, according to scholar Alan Kreider, the world seemed out of control. And I wonder if a few of us may have felt that way over the last few years at times. And so Cyprian wrote a treatise to teach them how to be faithful in turbulent times. This is what he said. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by, dre- by our dress but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. In our passage uh, for today, the Apostle Paul is also teaching us to live great things, to let our walk be our witness. And he said these things some 200 years before Cyprian wrote. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to chapter 6, verse 9 is a controversial passage. Paul gives instructions on relationships relationships between children and parents, slaves and masters, wives and husbands. And these instructions, which may be hard for us to see, these instructions would have sounded radical to those who first heard them, even a bit revolutionary. But what Paul is doing here is not immediately obvious. He's calling on us to live within certain cultural expectations, but to do so as those who know that there is something better coming along in God's plan that will far outshine even the best that this culture and this society has to offer today. And so Paul invites us to engage in the spiritual practice of subversive submission. Subversive submission. It is, it is submissive in that it lives within certain boundaries. It is subversive in that it changes things from the inside out, from within those boundaries. He's calling upon his readers to both be at home in the culture, but not at home. To both be at home in the culture and not at home. Or as one ancient uh, letter described, a distinctly Christian way of life, They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. This is part of what Paul is doing in our passage today. He is teaching us how to pass our days on earth, but as citizens of heaven, and how to be obedient to laws, yet to live on a level that transcends the law. So, just for fun, we're going to look at this passage using three holidays as our outline. Sometimes you just have to have a fun way to do this. 
Halloween, Good Friday, and Pentecost. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. But stick with me. Ralph Winter is a film producer. He's also a Christian. He's produced films like Star Trek IV, X-Men United. And for some people, identifying as a follower of Jesus and seeking to make films in Hollywood, in the film industry, would be challenging. Winter said in an interview that um, early on, as a person of faith, early on, it was difficult for him. Well-meaning fellow Christians would say to him things like, you know, when are you going to stop messing around with this Hollywood thing and get a real job? And so the first word on our outline is Halloween. In 1992, Ralph Winter was the executive producer on a film that initially flopped, but over the next 30 years gained in popularity tremendously, so much so that this fall it finally got a sequel. The film was Hocus Pocus, a tale of three witches raised from the dead to wreak havoc on the streets of modern-day Salem on Halloween night. Now, while he, Ralph Winter, would say that he's not out to change Hollywood, his presence as a producer on Hocus Pocus did have an impact. When considering whatever was the original ending of the film, I don't remember, I read it a long time ago, I'm not sure what it was, but when they considered that, Ralph Winter suggested that we change it, that they change it, and that they inject a bit of Christ-like self-sacrifice. And so the older brother, Max, saves his sister from the witches by putting himself in danger. He drinks the magic potion that the witches uh, are after so that they will come after him instead and leave his sister alone and thus good triumphs over evil. And this redefined the story. And if it's not too much to say, it nudged the film in a kingdom direction ever so slightly. Now, I don't think Ralph Winter would classify himself in this way, but I think he was doing something on a lesser scale, something like what the Apostle Paul does in our passage this morning. He was practicing subversive submission from within the motion picture industry. Subversive submission. That is, while he lives in and works in and submits to the boundaries and expectations of the film industry in Hollywood, he also nudges it forward to greater value, to greater worth, to greater truth, and a redemptive trajectory. And this is something we can all do wherever we are, at work, at school, at home. Our passage this morning, beginning with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, is actually a continuation of the six verses prior to it. It doesn't show up as well in our, our Bible versions, but it is. Verses 18 to 20 in particular serve as a bridge between the first part of Ephesians 5 and our passage for today. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Each of these words that I've highlighted in, <clears throat> in yellow are participles. They are verbs that have been turned into adjectives that expand on what it means to be filled with the Spirit, as he said in verse 18. Now, in English, we turn these verbs into participles by adding the suffix ing. These participles are five signs that we are filled with the Spirit. This translation, however, and many of them, to be honest, misses something. The last of those signs, submit, is not stated as a participle. It's stated as a command. 
And on top of that, the NIV in particular splits this off into a separate paragraph. So we're going to fix it. There we go. So you can see at the end there, it finishes, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's really how it reads. The last sign, submitting to one another, transitions us into the rest of the passage. In the ancient world, to be told to submit to one another would have been shocking. Submission was a one-way street. Always from down to up, always from the lesser to the greater, never the other way around. But Paul says, look, if you are truly filled with the Spirit of God, submission will run both ways, up and down, regardless of your status in society. Now, it is not difficult in that context to imagine that later that Sunday afternoon, Paul got angry emails in his inbox. Say, what do you mean, submit to one another? That's un-American. You're just a liberal. But friends, this is the nature of the gospel. The gospel impacts not only our relationships with God, but our relationships with one another. And it calls upon us to live differently. To live differently in the culture where we find ourselves, wherever the culture gets it wrong. The gospel calls us to live differently wherever we find ourselves when the culture gets it wrong. And in so doing, we can subvert the culture from within and we can nudge it toward life in the age to come. Paul then uses this fifth sign, submitting to one another, as a transition into an ancient existing form of instruction known as the household code. I will not be calling it the household code because whenever I say that, it sounds like I have a cold. Household code. Doesn't that sound? So we're just going to call it house codes or codes. And if Paul got angry emails after his statement about mutual submission, he will get even more angry emails when he starts to reinvent this house code. He's about to mess with their worlds. In the ancient world, these codes were meant to give order to society based on status and position, and the home was the building block of Roman society. If order in the home broke down, they reasoned that all of society would fall like a house of cards, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. One of the more famous codes in Paul's day would have come from Aristotle, who got a lot of things right. You're not going to like all of this. This is what he says. Seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of household management correspond to the persons who compose the household, and a complete household consists of slaves and freemen. Now we should begin by examining everything in its fewest possible elements, and the first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. Aristotle will go on to say that the husband's rule over his wife is based on natural constitution. For he adds, quote, The male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. I'm so glad 80 women are not here this morning to hear this. <laughs> Put another way, the home was to be a microcosm of Roman society with free men ruling over women and children and slaves. Now, getting back to our passage. After naming mutual submission, submitting to one another, as the fifth sign of being filled with the Spirit of God, Paul then goes to give examples. Here's what it's going to look like, he says, in the context of a society in which women, children, and slaves were inferior to men. As he does so, 
he will ever so subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, subvert the whole thing. As was the case with producer Ralph Winter, as was the case with the words of Cyprian in ancient Carthage, the Apostle Paul calls us to engage in subversive submission. Here's what it will look like in marriage. Chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's leading us from the last part of the passage, to your wives, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. You will notice, maybe, that... uh, In my translation up here, I left out the word submit, wives to your own husbands, because it's not there, which tells us for sure that what he's saying here goes back to the submitting above. It's tied to this passage as an example. Paul speaks first to wives and then to husbands. In these ancient house codes, wives were not addressed. In the ancient house codes of Paul's day, wives were not addressed. Their status didn't warrant it. The instruction was given to the male head of household because he ruled over all of it. But this is where Paul begins to subvert things from the inside out. He grants women and children and slaves dignity and worth by naming them first and honestly by naming them at all. Paul grants dignity and worth to slaves, to women, and to children by naming them first and by naming them at all. And let's note that Paul uses far more words here to describe the husband's role than he does the wife's. He does this because what he's asking of these men will seem downright radical. He needs to be clear that the husband's role as head of his wife will not look the same as it does for his non-Christian friends. Christian husbands will stand out like sore thumbs in Roman society. They are to subvert the house code by serving their wives. And over the long haul, these things will transform people and society. The kingdom of God will grow like yeast in dough, as Jesus put it. And so Paul writes this in verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. After naming husbands as the head, we would expect Paul to say, rule over your wives. But he doesn't. Instead, he says they are to love their wives. Ancient writings on these things simply do not often speak of husbands loving their wives. It's irrelevant. Can we see what Paul has done? He has taught husbands and wives to live within the boundaries of the cultural expectations, to submit to these house codes, but to do so subversively. Yes, husbands, as your society tells you, you are head of your wives in that day, in that context, but we're going to change what that means. We're going to subvert the whole thing. No longer will you rule over your wives, now you will love and serve them You will give your lives for them, just as Christ did on the cross. And in so doing, you will submit to them even as they submit to you. And we want to say, well, if that's what Paul means, why didn't he just use the same word? Why didn't he just say submit? Because he ain't on stupid pills. He's got to be sneaky about this. He's got to be subversive. 
One of the reasons Paul must be so subversive is because Christians were being accused by non-Christians of practicing freedom and love and following Jesus so much to the point that they feared it was going to disrupt the social order and thereby disrupting all of Roman society. So Paul has to be careful. No, Paul says, we are living within these house codes and this social order, but we are now doing so with a twist. We are undercover secret agents. And then by lifting Christ up as the example for what it means to be the head, for the husband to be head of his wife, Paul gives them this supreme model of how to live this way. As husbands who love and serve their wives rather than rule over them, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We could say, as we've been saying all along in this series, that husbands now live in the overlap of two ages, this present age and the age to come. Husbands, you live in the boundaries of the house code, which is this present age, but with an eye on the age to come. You are here to nudge things along in a new direction, to be be a little piece of new creation in the midst of the old creation. Paul will do this same thing with the relationship between children and parents and with the relationship between slaves and masters. In every case, the dominant free male of the household is given instructions that would have sounded like anarchy at the time. And in every case, those who would not normally be addressed are addressed first. They are given dignity. They are given agency. So Paul is not after anarchy. He's after subversive submission. He's after changing things and redeeming them, not creating chaos. He's after transformation, not revolution. And that takes time and patience and cleverness and grace, to say the least. Then, skipping down, toward the end of our passage, Paul begins to speak to slaves and their masters. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Paul is clearly elevating slaves here, and by doing so, he is launching a process that is intended to subvert the whole institution of slavery. But then Paul gets even more edgy. He subtly suggests that masters should imitate their slaves in these things. Verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Treat your slaves, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Some translations put it this way. And masters, do the same things to your slaves. What? The master serves the slave wholeheartedly? The master has to obey the slave with respect and fear and sincerity of heart? I don't even know what that would look like practically, but I do know this. That would have messed with the minds of any person who owned slaves in that church at that time. And that's exactly what Paul wants. Over time, these words will do their work. They will subvert the evil of slavery. This is 
subversive submission. And in case we are tempted to write this off as something I've just made up with no real basis, in fact, I want you to consider this. Consider Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that in Christ, the Word, God took on flesh and bone and made His dwelling among us. The second person of the Trinity subversively submitted himself to the limitations of creation, to growing up as a fragile, dependent human child. He submitted himself to learning and to growth and to teenage hormones. But his greatest contribution to this concept of subversive submission is his own death. So we come to the second holiday in our outline. Took us a while to get there. Good Friday. On Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, when he was put to death, Jesus submitted himself to the Jewish religious authorities and to the Roman Empire, to systemic injustice, to suffering, and to death on a cross. When they came to arrest Jesus and take him, Peter drew his sword, cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And we read this in Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have resisted, but he chose to submit to arrest and to trial and to death on a cross. Hebrews 12, 2 exhorts us to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And in doing so, Christ subverted the whole cosmic order. He turned it on its head. He defeated death by dying, and he brought us life. To practice the spiritual discipline of subversive submission is to engage in the ECC touchstone of presence. We, like Christ before us, are commissioned as agents of change and redemption in community with one another and in the world. And one of the ways we change things is through subversive submission. But how how are we to do these things? And what is the nature of our subversive submission today? I think these questions take us to our third holiday in our outline. It's all about the coming, the infilling, the, and the power of the Holy Spirit whom God gave to us in the birth of the church in the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Way back at the beginning of our passage, or just before, Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul exhorted us not to be drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit of God. It is that infilling of God's Spirit that enables us to live lives of mutual submission to one another and it empowers us to subvert the culture from within. If we're going to live as wise followers of Jesus Christ in the world, we must be filled with God's Spirit. We must experience our own mini Pentecost. Pentecost being plural. This is not a one-and-done deal. What what Paul more literally says in Ephesians 5.18 is that we are to be being filled. This is an ongoing way of life, not a one-time experience. But how are we to do this? If we have placed our faith in Christ Jesus as one who has died and as one who rose again and has forgiven us our sin, if we have pledged our lives to God and God's Spirit already dwells within us, 
What is left is to be filled. If we have come to know Christ, the Spirit of God already lives within us. What is left is to be filled with the Spirit, to let the Spirit free to work in us and through us. And this being filled with the Spirit is not something we make happen. It's passive. It's something we receive. And so we can do two things for this to happen. We ask. We ask. We ask God to fill us and to make us more sensitive to the Spirit's work in our lives. That's where it begins. We ask. And we trust that God is faithful. That God wants to give good gifts to His children. Chief among those, the Spirit. And when we ask... The second thing we do is whenever we sense the Spirit speaking to us, we respond. If there is a sin we need to confess, we do that. If there is a person in need and God wants us to help meet that need, we do that. If there's some step we need to take, we do that. If there is a relationship we need to restore, we do that. We obey. We simply do the next right thing. This is how we practice subversive submission. We ask for the Spirit to fill us. We listen for the Spirit's leading and we do what the Spirit tells us to do. Where do we practice subversive submission? Wherever we are. For no matter where we are, no matter how good things may be, this present age in which we all live is not all that God intends or one day will bring about. Wherever we are, we are called to some form of subversive submission. We are called to listen to the Spirit and go and do the next right thing. As those who live in the overlap of this present age and the age to come, we walk. We do not stand still, we walk. We move forward, always growing in our relationship with Christ, always nudging and stretching and fleshing out the new creation within the old. And in and through us, God changes things. God builds his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Where are you in relationship to the Spirit of God? As I said, if you've come to know Christ, the Spirit lives within you. Are you listening to the voice of the Spirit? Are you depending on the Holy Spirit? Do you have one of my favorite words, a robust theology of the Holy Spirit who has the power to change you, has the power to empower you, to live in your life, to dwell within you, and to move you along in Christ-likeness and in and through you to change the world and to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks this day for the gift of your Spirit We give you thanks that the Spirit has been poured out upon your church and that the Spirit is available to us. Lord, I ask you now, I ask you to fill us. Fill us as individuals, fill us as this body of believers, Lord God. Would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you make us receptive to your Spirit? Will you show us the steps we need to take, the the one or two things that we need to do in order to be obedient to you, in order to live the way you've called us to live, that your kingdom might be built in us and through us, Lord. Would you come, fill us, every fiber of our being, as individuals and as a community, that we might do your will, that we might 
see in our lives and our relationships the power within us to change this culture from within. Lord, help us to see where you are at work and help us to join that work. And may you receive all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.